Hello and welcome to What the CF Assistic Fibrosis podcast. I'm Ingrid Grenard. Thank you so much for supporting independent podcasts and tuning in. If you are enjoying listening to our episodes, please consider throwing some love our way. You can follow us on Instagram at whatthecfpod. You can like us on Facebook at what the CFA Cystic Fibrosis Podcast, or you can visit our website whatthecf.com, and you'll find all the links to our social media and all our episodes. This week's episode is with Lizzie Mackay from CFNZ and talking transplant. I had a great chat with Lizzie, and she was really candid about her experience with CF and the ups and downs and the challenges that she faced going for a lung transplant and the recovery. I would say that maybe if you're new to the CF community, that maybe don't start your What the CF podcast journey with this episode, because it's quite full on. And obviously, this is a kind of later down the road issue for people with CF. However, if you're keen to know about the process and recovery from lung transplant, then have a listen to this brilliant chat with Lizzie. She's very upbeat and honest about her life and health, and she hands out some prized pieces of advice as well for both people with CF and for the people around them. Enjoy the podcast. Take care. Lizzie Mackay, welcome to What the CF Assistic Fibrosis podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for giving your time today. I know you're a very, very busy lady. No, it's a pleasure. I'm very excited to be part of it. So a lot of people in the CF community in New Zealand would know who you are because of your job at CFNZ, where you're a communications coordinator. So Lizzie, do you want to tell me a little bit about yourself for those that don't know who you are? Yes. So I'm Lizzie. I'm 30. Kiwi, have CF, and I've got a twin brother who's got CF as well. Um, And I have the privilege of working for Cystic Fibrosis New Zealand. CFNZ is the only organisation who supports every Kiwi with CF through advocacy and information and support through field workers. You interviewed one of them um, in season one, the lovely Sue, and research. And how long have you been working there? So I have been there for, it'll be three years in June. So I do all the comms, the website, the social media, quite involved in advocacy and building relationships with people in the community. And I love it very, very much. So what about the other people in CFNZ as an organisation and your teammates? How do you all work together? So we are a pretty small team um, made up of field workers and marketers and our chief executive and advocacy and all that kind of stuff. And everyone turns up to work every day with the same passion to support our community and I just love working with all of them um I feel really grateful that we obviously I'm part of the community and part of the staff and I can see firsthand how hard everyone works and what about your life outside work what do you like to get up to um well currently I'm hunkered down at home trying not to get COVID Pretending um, we're in a in a non COVID world. Yeah. In the before times, what did we like the before to times? To? <laughs> so I live in a flat with some flatmates, and the main part of my world is my family and friends. Very very important to me. I don't need anything other than them. Yeah, and I lo- I do love working. So I that is a massive part of my life. And you mentioned you had a dog as well. 
Yes, I've got a little dog called Corey. He's 13. Oh, wow. Um, but still acts like a puppy. Oh, that's good. And, yeah, a bit of a therapy dog for us when I was unwell. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't know it. So can you tell me a little bit about, so you said you've got a, a twin brother with CF. Can you tell me a little bit about your day-to-day life living with CF and maybe how it compares to your brother if, if his experience is, is different from yours? So when we were born, Alex was really unwell. He was a very, very sick baby um, in hospital from our first year, really. And I was well. Um, he, they tested him for CF, obviously, came back that he had it. So they thought we'd better test the twin. And I lived quite, I think, happily compared to Alex's being in hospital all the time until um, I was about three or four and started getting infections then. So Alex, Alex's was bowel related and then he recovered from that and I always say we sort of swapped. We swapped and my house, I became the one who was like sick all the time. So Alex lives like a relatively normal life. Um, he works full time. So I work part time. And yeah, he's, he's great. He's doing really, really well. Um, so day to day life, he, he does the normal CF physio treatment and exercises and whatever my life changed drastically so my day-to-day CF life now feels for me quite easy because I don't have to do nebulizers and physio only if I get an infection whereas my first 21 years sort of I was on many nebulizers every day lots and lots of treatment and now in comparison, I just have to take pills and look after myself. Like this, it's not good all the time, but I don't remember being, so I was 21 when I had my lung transplant, but I don't remember being told beforehand that afterwards I wouldn't have to do treatment. And so it was almost like the special surprise, like, hey, you've had a transplant and now you don't have to do nebulizers. It was amazing. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm life-changing not having to spend hours doing treatment every day like I do have a big focus on my health and looking after myself and I know my body really really well and I know when I'm overdoing it or if I need a rest or if I need to contact the team Um, but I don't have that massive regime of treatment which is amazing amazing but that's another thing that um, the pandemic's kind of teaching everyone, which CF people, uh, particularly adults with CF, will have been doing anyway, is like you say, having to know your body really well and know how you're feeling and when you need to stop and rest. Because with everything that's going on, um, with all the changes and the stress and people catching COVID and recovery from COVID, rest is proving to be you know, a big thing of stopping long COVID. And so we're talking about your child, so you, childhood where you say your health declined from around three or four how did that affect your childhood overall with what you could do and couldn't do and education things like that with schooling like were you in and out of school a lot so um so I started having semi-frequently frequent IVs yeah when I was like three or four and then by the time I was seven I was having about I was having them every three months I think and we learned really quickly how to do home IVs so 
really grateful for my parents. They turned into nurses and looked after us. Sometimes both of us were on IVs at the same time Mm. and we were able to be at home. We were able to go to school every day. Um, And school was, school was a really big part of my life. I really thrived being at school. So even when I was older in my teens and having to be in hospital, I'd sometimes go to school from the hospital. I always like to think that my CF lives alongside me, but it shouldn't, I try not to let it affect all those parts of my life. So when I was at school, I was at school. Even if I was sick, I still wanted to be there. Um, And yeah, I was in and out of hospital a lot, but we, I just shifted my focus. What what were your highlights at school? What was your favourite thing? So I went to Baradine College in Rimiwera and I just loved all the values of the school. I loved being with my friends. I loved the teachers. I loved learning. I hated exams. (laughs) I never once did a cross country, which is (laughs) like pretty amazing. My claim to fame got out of it every year. Um, But it was just something that was really positive in my life and really uplifting. So it kind of balanced out all the tough CF times. Like, And there were a lot of them. But I think the way my parents sort of brought us up was to do all the right things, be compliant. I'm a real stickler for rules. Um, and if I'm told to do something by my the CF team or the transplant team or whatever, I will do it. Yeah, when I was probably like 13, 14, I I was getting really sick all the time and I realised I needed to not be emotionally connected to my CF. So I sort of parked that. I will never, and I still now, will never get upset about being sick. I'll just go, cool, what are we going to do about it? And how, like, what's the solution rather than getting upset about the situation that I'm in? And that has made my life a really uh, like my world a really positive place to be because I don't I don't dwell on the CF stuff I just try and get on with it by doing the right things or think by doing what I'm told to do does that's that make so, sense yeah that's so interesting as a way to approach it and I'd imagine from the number of people I've spoken to adults with CF um generally people are obviously very matter of fact about it because it's you and it's always been part of your lives and do seem to be able to to detach that emotion and quite practical sounding when I think from a parent's point of view Mm. that's a lot harder to do because it's something happening to somebody else but I think what you're saying is makes perfect sense and actually seems like a great way to approach it as like this sort of separate entity that has to be dealt with but it's not you if you know what I mean yeah that's what you're saying yeah it doesn't affect my personality or my happiness or like sometimes it's a a drag but um there's always I'm always I'm happy I'm honestly I'm so grateful and I think people think it's a bit weird that I um (laughs) how dare you be happy (laughs) yeah no be so uh, like detached from it but also, no, it makes sense. It can, makes perfect but also sense control to me. It. Yeah, I, I, I it really makes sense as much to me. As I can. Um, yeah. I'm interested to know. So you, that sounds amazing. What your parents would have gone through with having you and your brother and different stages of different health problems. Yeah. But it sounds like so. Did they approach it very much like like you're saying as well that not not defining you didn't make you feel like like you said a a, a strong rule follower, which I am too. 
which is very difficult, especially at the moment <laughs> when you've got yeah. this stuff, um, when people love to fight the rules. But um, that probably helps if you have that instinct anyway, because you like want to tick all the boxes, which is good. But how did your parents balance things and and communicate with you about it as you were growing up? They're like they're my rocks. They're absolutely amazing. My best friends, and we're really really close. I should say I've also got an older brother, Andrew, who doesn't have CF. So they were juggling that as well. Yeah. Um, and they, I've always, I've always said that every, after, even though everything I've been through personally with CF, it would have been so much harder for my parents because they were watching it. Mm. And there's just so much that we can't control, obviously. And I know you know that. But um, I think when we were growing up, they did try to protect us a bit from some of the realities and CF was very different back then 30 years ago there were different health outcomes um, and it's I suppose changed a bit but we were probably protected a little bit and then social media came along and I started making a few friends who had CF and then I'd be the one who knew what was happening to other people so they weren't able to protect me anymore but um, we grew up really quickly because we had to and I'm have always been quite mature and so I've been able to have those conversations with mum and dad I can talk to them about anything yeah growing up around adults obviously in hospital with nurses and doctors and my parents and my aunties and uncles and our family friends we we did have we do have an amazing support network around us Mm. and and you ask how mum and dad coped I actually don't know how they did it because we have been through a lot and um, they've always, to me, been exactly what I needed at the time. Mm. I feel really, really lucky to have them. Yeah, I think uh, from a parent perspective, I'm only five years into being a parent. But I have friends who say to me, like, oh, I don't know how you do this or do that. And it is purely because no one else is going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, like, there's no choice. There's no choice yeah. in it. You've got to do Some, it. Sometimes mum and I will chat and she's like, how did we do that? And mm. I was like, what else were we going to do? Exactly. We didn't have that many options. Exactly. Um, and yeah, and it, it's amazing what people get through. And it's normally after the fact that you, anything hits you anyway. So you sort of get yeah, through the worst exactly. and then you kind of have to process that part and be gentler yeah. and kinder and to yourself and then move on from that. Um, but that's yeah. really lovely to hear about the relationship with you, you have with your parents and your family and being so close. At what point was um, the idea of a transplant brought up and then how quickly did it actually occur and, and what sort of decisions and you know queries did you have when that was happening? Obviously, something like after didn't exist then. So that was the major treatment when it came to it. And I just wonder, yeah. like, you know, what the decisions are and, and how you and your family dealt with that. Yeah. So I was probably about 15 or 16 when my health really started to deteriorate. And I was on IVs and about seven nebulizers all the time. I finished school, went to uni, I was doing teaching and... I was just in and out of hospital so much and I just couldn't, I couldn't do much. I was still really happy, but um, yeah, the health was taking over and it got to the point one day where I got called in for an 8.30 meeting with the consultant and he at that point told me, so I was 20 
um, told me that basically there was nothing more that they could do for me. My lung function continued to drop. I continued to have infections. I couldn't recover. Like having IVs would not even help. And I knew I needed them, but it didn't actually make me better. And then they said to me, and you can stop doing your nebulizers because they're actually probably not doing anything but irritating your lungs. Yeah, they said the only thing left is to assess you for a transplant. And I actually naively had not even considered it yet. Hadn't had the conversation with my parents. We hadn't even gone there. Mm. We'd been told maybe a year before I think mum or dad brought it up in clinic and my doctor said, I promise you when it's time, I will bring it up with you. You don't have to um, bring it up with us. Mm -hmm. But they probably, in my opinion, maybe left it a bit late Um, or I just got sick a lot faster than they thought I would. So that was end of February um, one year that they told me I had to have a transplant. The following week I went on like 20 hours a day oxygen Everything snowballed really quickly. I got assessed for the transplant. I got put on the active list in June. And then, so that means you're actively waiting for a phone call to say, yeah. So at that point, I had built, started to build a relationship with the transplant team and there's transplant coordinators and they kind of check in on you. And if you're going to go away, like we've got a beach house in Matarangi, and if we were going to go down there, we would let them know that we were going just so that if lungs did come along, that might be for me, they could let us know earlier or whatever. So, yeah, basically I was just waiting for the phone to ring and I still was going to uni, which was crazy. I was I was trying to hide it from everyone. And um, that was going to be my, my friend, next question was like, yeah, my friends how much were did like, your friends we, know? We can see the stripes on your face from like sleeping on your oxygen tubes. I used to have a tank in the car, park right outside the lecture, like get my fill of oxygen, go into the lecture, sleep through it, go back to the car, have a coughing fit, drive home, go to bed, mm. do the same thing the next day. I, I, I didn't want to give up uni, but I also couldn't, I didn't have the energy to come home and do assignments. So Um, So I got put on the list in June and then probably I turned 21 in August and then in September I stopped going to uni because I just couldn't manage it anymore. And mum and dad had a conversation with me about the fact that I should be using my good hour of the day, not sitting in a lecture theatre, but I should be using it, having a friend over or, you know, seeing family or whatever. And then unfortunately in... October, November, I think, I grew a bug that they didn't want to, they didn't feel confident transplanting me with. Mm-hmm. So they took me off the list so, and put me on the inactive list. So they took you off the active list and then you get put on. And they put me on the inactive list. So basically the inactive list means that they've got all your details, they know everything about you. They could just tick the box over to active where you might get the call, but inactive you're not going to get the call. So me being me, when they told me that, I said to my doctor, cool, can I go to Australia and see my friend? Mm. <laughs> and like, I obviously was, again, naively didn't know how sick I was, but yeah. he was like, sure. So my mum organised like oxygen, 
everything that I needed in Australia. We went over for a week so I could see one of my best friends. We surprised her actually. And it was amazing, but I was in bed most of the time. Mm. And then while in, in the background, the transplant team were talking to other transplant teams overseas to get advice on how they could successfully do a transplant if I was still growing this bug because um, they hadn't transplanted someone with it in New Zealand before. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they had um, all the advice that they needed, I suppose. After that Australia trip, I ended up in hospital for a couple of weeks. Then I went home for a day. Then I went back in and I caught norovirus. So in isolation for about 18 days. And then I got just, and then I got really sick. Um, and they had put me back on the active list because they'd worked that out. But at that point, I they brought in the palliative care team so that they could comfortably send me home. Again, naive me thought that it was just so that I could have the pain relief that I needed at home and not be in hospital. But um, you can join the dots there. The palliative team were amazing, like really, really special group of people. And they managed to get me home, um, trained mum in my fentanyl pain pump that I was on 24 hours a day. I couldn't I couldn't really do anything. So we were at that point desperately waiting for so the is phone this, is this- to ring. After um, you're 21, then at that point, mm. yeah. So sorry, this is in December. Yeah. So yeah, and then it was probably 10 days later the phone rang, and our it was a little miracle happened. Basically, mm. um, the coordinate it was the transplant coordinator ringing to say that they had some lungs for me and that I had to be in the hospital within an hour. Wow. So it was two o'clock in the afternoon, had to be there at three o'clock, but I didn't go into surgery till about 2.30 in the morning. And Wow, so quick, isn't it? Yeah. It felt like the longest 12 hours of our lives (laughs) (laughs) waiting in this room. Because you were so Um, unwell, like at that point, even if you weren't fully aware of how unwell you were yeah Um, yeah. like did you understand you know the risks around the surgery and you know what was at stake with everything or were you not even thinking about it because you're so consumed by just not feeling feeling so bad anyway so I knew that transplant was my only option and I truly believed that it would happen for me because like otherwise what else so I I didn't even ask if it was going to be painful. That's how desperate I was. I didn't even consider the fact that I'd be in pain really afterwards. Mm. Um, but it's I believed it would happen for me, but you also can't imagine the day that yeah. this call's going to come. Yeah. So I understood everything very well. They give you really good education beforehand and about all the risks. They basically... You sit you down in clinic and run through everything and you um, sign the consent months. Like when you go on the list, you sign the consent for the surgery. Did you join so, any like support groups? I think I heard that there was some support groups for people who so were on in, waiting lists for transplants. Yeah. So there's this amazing place called Hearty Towers, which is where trans- 
lung and heart transplant patients in New Zealand go to for assessment and to recover from transplant. And they do a support group meeting. It's, it's, it's like part of the hospital. It's at Green Lane. They do a support group meeting every week. Um, but we weren't in the Zoom era back then, and obviously people with CF couldn't go because we couldn't be in the same room. So my mum would go. Mum and dad would go. Mum went every week. Um, and so she got a lot of education there and heard um, people's amazing stories about their recovery and people would be there, you know, three weeks after they'd had a transplant. So you're actually seeing them um, wow. recovering in front of your eyes every week. Yeah, you that stay was probably and, quite important for your parents to see as well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was sort of, I had, I had a really good friend with CF and I didn't even tell her that I was on the list because I don't know I felt like it was I have had times in my life where I'm quite private about my house doesn't sound like it right now but um transplant definitely was not something that I, I never posted about it on Facebook or anything it was kind of our family and special ones knew that I was on the list but yeah that's very very private didn't. I would completely yeah. understand and that people didn't know about it there's a bit of a lack of understanding about it at times like I went to the dentist and he said he obviously had to know that I was on the list and he said oh so when's your transplant gonna be <laughs> <laughs> I was well. like I've got no idea I'll just go order those lungs then shall I <laughs> yeah yeah so I did keep it quite quiet so I didn't really like jump into that kind of support network um I have amazing friends and they are always everything that I need so I didn't feel at the time that I needed it but post-transplant I was like well I've done it now so I want to make sure everyone after me knows exactly what they're walking into had some hot tips and hot takes from me so I, I actually about a month three weeks after my transplant I, I text this friend and I said, I'm really sorry, but I've kept something for you. I had a transplant three weeks ago. And she was like, what? Oh, my goodness. Had no idea. We'd been in hospital in rooms next to each other. And I hadn't, I'd just kept it all to myself. But I said to her, so now if you ever have any questions, like we can talk about everything. I'm here. Because I knew that she had started the conversation with her. And I just wanted to be the support that I could be to anyone that I knew. Also, post-transplant, when you've got CF, you can generally see other people who are post-transplant with CF, which is incredible. So by the time I got to Hardy wow. Towers, I was recovering with, like, living with people with CF, which had never, other Amazing. than now, obviously hadn't really met anyone or hadn't been able to be in person with anyone for, we're like walking on the treadmill next to each other, <laughs> talking about the way that our lives had been so similar but we it was someone I did, hadn't met before a transplant from Christchurch that's was, so interesting I didn't know it that. was amazing and I yeah. didn't know I didn't know until relatively recently that it meant you didn't do any treatments anymore like you still take enzymes and so on if you you need that yeah but um, I take all the enzymes. you don't do those other ones and I I think it was on our CF mum group we were chatting and someone said it and I was like, oh, that I'd never even 
like thought about that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and then it didn't, didn't think even about cross that. my mind. So that's amazing. <laughs> that you can do that. I don't know if you would remember or if it's too personal a question, but do you remember like waking up from the operation? Do you remember the first kind of week and that yeah, kind I of do. thing, I, processing it all yeah. or recovering? I mean, such a major operation. I don't know how much you would do remember. <laughs> it was, it was huge. I'm someone who's never never been scared or emotional about my health but rolling and on the bed away from my parents and my brothers going into that surgery I had never been so scared Mm. in all my life because I just there's there's so much unknown associated with it and everyone has such a different journey afterwards Mm. they woke me up at about 6 30 p.m so I went into the surgery in the Two, two o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. then 6 30 p.m that day they woke me up and I'd said to mum and dad beforehand I was like I want to know um what day it is what time it is like these are the things I need to know because I want to know how long I've been asleep for and mm-hmm. that was important to me and when I woke up I was still intubated so I couldn't talk and I actually couldn't breathe because it was sort of breathing for you mm-hmm. so I didn't feel any um my breathing didn't feel any better than it did when I had been at home on oxygen the day before mm-hmm. until they extubated about four or five hours later. And it was, it was incredible. Like <laughs> when I think about it and at the time, I don't know why, but I just, my first breath with my new lungs, all I can think of is like sunflowers. <laughs> it was like new life. Yeah. And I was just like, I couldn't move um, and I was in agony but it was the start of like the rest of my life and it was yeah really special I made sure mum and dad stayed there they didn't want to see me being extubated and I was like you're not going anywhere <laughs> um, so I think it was more traumatic for them than yeah, it was for me I imagine and I was in uh, ICU for a, one night which is crazy mm. and it's normal to be in for at least a couple of nights or a week and then you you would usually go to HDU yeah but they had me in there for one night and then straight on to the cardiothoracic ward um I must have been okay enough to be on the ward I was right outside the nurses station but it did feel like a very quick transition over to not having someone a nurse with you all the time Mm -hmm. they do tell you before you transplant it's Similar to when you have a baby and you have like day two blues and being someone who's really happy, positive, really grateful for my mental health, it hit me like a ton of bricks Mm. because you have, you're so desperate and waiting and then you have the transplant and then it hits you what it means for another family. Mm. And it's, it's a really, like my donor is I feel really really connected Mm. to her and I couldn't be more grateful the blues hit me and I was questioning everything but when the it must be I don't know such a roller coaster of emotions it is and you're like unloading all of that time that you've had when you've been unwell and all of this other stuff and like you said what it means for the the other family and your family and your life and everything Um, yeah so it's a lot for your 
little mind little, to actually process. Brain. I know. And I think and um, I... even just the effect, even if you ha- didn't have all of this stuff, like any operation is traumatic anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just think um, I can't, well, I can't really imagine. But I, you know, I understand what you're saying about all the different kind of things that go through your mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and then... your parent, like, oh, it must have just been such a kind of whirlwind as well because it happens so quickly You're, you've got no time yeah, to process like you said even though you know it's happening or you know it could happen you can't prepare for it until it is that day which is so like exactly. um with that recovery so you got moved out relatively quick uh, quickly quickly and yeah how was so the they... recovery after that so you're in the cardiothoracic ward I was there for about a week it was quite hard because there was a lot of pain and you're in I was so used to being in the respiratory ward. Everyone knew me. We all, like, I had my routines and you have really good relationships with people. And I was all of a sudden in the hardest part of my life and I didn't know anyone. So that was a bit rough. But after a week, I went to the, back to the respiratory ward. They did, like, a guard of honour as I was coming <laughs> down in my bed, down <laughs> the corridor. Honestly, That's it was cute. so exciting because they'd nursed me for years. Yeah. Um, and we're there on the journey with me. So it was amazing being back there. So, which sounds weird, but, um, for a hospital. So I was there for two weeks and then I went to Hardy Towers, which is, as I said, in in Green Lane. And it's just a place where you go to recover and sort of, you cook all your own meals. You have to have a support person with you all the time, but you cook all your own meals. You mix with other people who've had transplants. Is that all funded? Um, That's all funded as part of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's right next to Greenland Clinical Centre where we would go to the gym every day. I had never stepped foot in a gym. Hmm. Uh, I've never been one to enjoy exercise at all. So it was huge for me to go to the gym every day for an hour, Uh, but I slowly grew stronger and because I had no muscle because I had barely moved for so long before that. So I was not only recovering from this major surgery, I was carrying about 10 kilos of fluid from all the steroids, which was like carrying weights. And I was exercising, trying to get fit, trying to build muscle that I didn't have really. Mm -hmm. So it was a really full on time. Um, But after being there for about four weeks, I walked to the top of One Tree Hill Oh, wow. It's a bit of a, yeah, it's a, it's right next to One Tree Hill. So there's a bit of a tradition that after you've had your transplant, before you can go home from Heidi Towers, you walk up there. And it's actually more of a mental thing than a physical thing because the physios know that we're strong enough to get up there. But it's, Believing you get you to the top and you go, wow, mm. I have, my body can do this. I can achieve things. I have a future like shit better get planning basically yeah <laughs> get to work that's how, yeah, that sounds I, like that sounds like an excellent what the cf moment going up yes i would definitely say that is because i was gonna i, I left, left that to the end but i'm like oh this whole yeah. this all of this is a the cf moment but that sounds like a nice positive one yeah so then i was in this weird position of i had left uni i didn't want to go back into teaching because I you don't really have an immune system post-transplant because you're on so so much suppressant um, suppressants yeah 
that being around kids all day was like it was a no-brainer to not go ahead and do yeah. teaching they're too jammy um exactly and so I wasn't in the workforce I was in this limbo in between I don't know what I want to do um my first year was a bit post-transplant was a bit rocky I had quite a few surgeries and a few things go wrong but my lungs were amazing and I ended up getting a job about 18 months later um just one day a week which grew to two days a week three days a week four days a week I was there for about five years that was before I started at CFNZ but yeah I that's a uh another challenge that people with a chronic illness have is managing adult life with going to work yeah. and paying your bills and doing that stuff um so having yeah. that support network like that you have is just yeah. priceless isn't it we got your what the cf moment which is climbing up one tree hill what about if you were going to advise anyone caring for someone post-transplant and that doesn't have to mean you know the immediate you know first month it could be the first you know few years you know, what piece of advice would you give to anyone who's close to someone? To, to a support person. Yeah. I suppose what I had from my parents was constant love and support and encouragement mm-hmm. because I had lived for so long in a state of sickness. You can imagine that it would be really easy to just fall back to that. And we were really conscious of not wanting that to happen and I was encouraged all the time to go for a walk what are we doing tomorrow and I had their full support with whatever I wanted to do does that make sense yes absolutely and it's not something uh, this is why it's so great to talk to people that have had these experiences because it's not something I ever would have considered but now then you say yeah. it and think absolutely that's ha- what it would feel like because you, re- you could because it's your whole to... like you said it's your existence and you always try yeah. to separate it but when it starts to climb over you like it did yeah it is part of um, who you are in your everyday life because everything you did for most of the day was taking care of your health so they were definitely my main source of support. Um, but my friends as well, I would have messages every day sort of cheering you on for the yes. little things because the little things are big things. Being able to walk around the block or being able to walk my dog for the first time was amazing. And that just sounds trivial, but no, it was huge for us. So transplant is like, obviously it saved my life. It changed my life, but it's not it's not a cure and it's not um it's not trichafta but we didn't have trichafta being dangled in front of us nine years ago so that was our only option I try and arm myself with as much knowledge as I can to know what I can control what I can't control what I can do to put myself in the best position every day my next question was going to be advice for anyone uh, with CF who will be facing a transplant or is on the list like what could you say to them and that that sounds like a perfect thing to say is to weigh up the things that are worth worrying about really I guess yeah and I would say for people who are waiting go for a walk truly I feel like something that made my recovery a bit harder was that I just didn't have the muscle and I know that it's really hard and I obviously at the time didn't realize how important it was going to be in my recovery but Whenever I talk to anyone who's going through that transplant process and um, assessment would be just to try and exercise even just 10 minutes or like if it's going to, not at the moment in COVID, but like go to the mall 
and walk for 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be on the footpath, but that, that would be a biggie. The first time I walked, Corey was down in at, at our beach house and I took him on the beach and I got a $300 fine. Oh, <laughs> that was the downside. That's the what the CF so, moment. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say? I you- I wrote a letter back to the, the Coromandel Council or whatever it was saying, like, it was Easter. He was on a lead. It was, like, Easter Monday. The sign was ambiguous. So I said that, and I said, this is the first time I've actually been able to walk because I just had a lung transplant a couple of months ago. And they <laughs> they wrote a letter back asking for proof of the transplant. that I'd had a transplant. Because people so regularly like, make that up, don't they? I know. <laughs> Maybe they I do. Like, <laughs> I've got my lungs. Do you want to see them? Oh, my God. Um. But I had to go to the GP and get a letter that said Lizzie had a transplant on this date and that I actually got off the fine. And I don't know anyone else who has got off a beach walking, dog walking fine That's before. an extortionate <laughs> amount of money. And I would have learnt the same lesson from a $20 fine. You were absolutely okay? right to write a letter and I hope they felt terrible, but at least you didn't have to pay it. But um, It's just insane, isn't it? It's a good story though. Yeah. Right. Can I say... If anyone ever wants to get in touch with me to talk about any CF stuff, transplant stuff, work like CFNZ, my emails are always open. I'm on Facebook. I post quite regularly on our our group and always love connecting with anyone. Can you tell us your email and can you tell us how people can find you on Instagram or what's your handle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my... Email is comms, C-O-M-M-S, at cfnz.org.nz. And on Instagram, I'm Lizzie Mackay, just all one word. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me on What the CF. Thank you for You've having been me. It's an been amazing a... guest, and I really oh, appreciate it's a, it. A lovely way to spend the afternoon. <laughs>